what's up, what's up? Welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ohano. I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. And this is a quick reminder that the Patreon page is up. Um, the four bonus episodes of the season are already up. You know, we discussed uh, the 2019 nominees for International Feature Film as a celebration of Parasite's first year of Oscar victory. So all other nominees, um, Pain and Glory, Corpus Christi, Les Miserables, and... Honeyland already up, so be sure to check the Patreon page for that. So, for this episode, we're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 54th Academy Awards. That film is Mephisto, co-written and directed by Isvan Shabo. This was Hungary's first win and fifth nomination. So, this film is about Hendrik Hufkin. I'm not sure I pronounced that right. A struggling artist stuck in doing provincial theater. And he tries to make it really into the limelight. So he established a Bolshevik theater for more opportunities. Meanwhile, while Nazism rises, he come, he becomes a big star. And he becomes a favorite of high-ranking officials while playing the role of Mephisto, um, a devil in literature. <laughs> However, his stance regarding the political climate, and you know, he's kind of indifferent because... He's got protection, or so he thought. And his position in that society starts to become more compromised as the fascism starts to hit close to home. So that is a quick summary of Mephisto. So Argus for today is from the United States. Argus is a writer at the Film Experience. Yay! An awards writer. Um, please welcome Chris James. Hi, Chris! Hi, so lovely to be here. So excited to talk about Mephisto. <laughs> you don't hear that always, but I'm so <laughs> glad to to have you because I like um, we mentioned a while ago before we started recording, the last time we actually the first time we met and the first time we talked was for this um kind of like round table. Absolutely. <laughs> like, um, yeah, a Zoom conversation for the film experience about the Emmy race. And it was a joyful, like, hour or so. And, um, I don't know. The Oscars are coming near, so... Um, Nathaniel, Abe, Claudio, hear ye. Yes, let's <laughs> do it again. Be happy to Please. talk through all the uh, Oscar nominees, or potential nominees. <laughs> yes, and, um, we have to have some more fun in this very extended awards season. And I'm already losing breath, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the, the extra two months will be the death of us all. <laughs> oh, gosh. And uh, I hope we just get vaccinated while... I, I don't know if we're going to get vaccinated and we still don't have the Oscars. I'm like, what is going on with these Oscars? But anyway, I'm just so happy to see you again and to talk to you. And um, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram and Letterboxd at CWJ92MovieMan. You can also find my podcast, The People vs. Oscar, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we just finished our last year, but there are 100 episodes to go back and listen to where we uh, pit the highest grossing movie uh, worldwide of each year versus the best picture winner of that year. So lots of weird, crazy stuff we've watched uh, over the 100 episodes. 
Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go back because <laughs> I just saw, like I said, I just saw the Parasite episode and I thought, oh, it's the first episode. It's so great. We just started a new podcast. And I'm like, oh no, it's been running for four years. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so late in the party. It's the last episode. Oh gosh. But yeah, it's um, best popular film. What? Um, oh, it, yeah. So yeah. And, and because it's like worldwide every once in a while, you get some very interesting choices. Like I remember in the 60s, we, we got, uh, I think that was our last foreign language film before Parasite, but it was like War and Peace, which was an absolute like crazy long trip. We, uh, when we did our first episode, um, it's like, I think like four or five hour silent film on Napoleon was the highest grossing movie of the year with, uh, by Abel Gantz. It was, uh, the first widescreen movie because they set three cameras side by side and started filming. And then you could see like the tape between the three reels of film that made it widescreen. Yeah. You gotta do what you gotta do. If you, if there, if the technology is not there, tape the celluloid and you exactly. have a widescreen. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that War and Peace because that's so surprising mm-hmm. that War and Peace was such a hit then. And I would be discussing it on the sixth season. Yeah, it, it's it's quite a film. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I'm already terrified, but uh, just one season at a time. <laughs> yes. So, all right. All right, so Mephisto. Um you haven't seen have you seen this before no so all of the movies that i watched uh for this podcast were all new to me which was exciting i kind of um i feel like 80s foreign cinema is a bit of a blind spot so i was really excited when you asked me because i was like oh i can uh this is sort of an area i haven't really explored as much um but yeah no all, all were new including mephisto all right that's great Ah, that's great. Um, so, initial thoughts, first thoughts, what did you think of Mephisto? Um, initial thoughts, I will say, like, at first I was just like, wow, this is really Cabaret 2 Electric Boogaloo. Um, <laughs> uh, overall, I, I, I would say I liked it. I really liked um, Klaus Maria Brandauer's performance in it. And I, I liked the way that it showed how... Um, an artist sort of has his values until he doesn't and they're challenged. And I enjoyed following along on that realm. I think we've seen stories about, you know, artists getting corrupted before. And of, of course, yet another movie about Nazis and the Holocaust wins in the foreign language feature category. But overall, I was, especially compared to some of the other choices, I, I feel like I was entertained by it. And it definitely like, kept things engaging and really interesting. What were your thoughts? So I'm coming into this uh, film having seen um, the other um, Ishvan Shabo and Klaus Marie Brandauer films that they collaborated mm-hmm. on um, because they were um, they were nominated for 1985 in Colonel Riedel and 1988 for Hanusen. So it's... I'm already sensing a pattern in the way of the filmmaking, and um, it that means interesting concept, kind of dull execution with a second half dropping the ball. That's the <laughs> pattern that I've like very specific pattern that I've found with their collaboration. So I'm actually kind of 
conflicted because I know Mephisto is um, like a Hungarian classic. And um, it's the first Hungarian film to win. And then we don't get to have that until like Son of Saul. So um, there is a lot of history following it. But at the same time, I had those experiences with the two films. Like, I don't know what to expect. Um, I would say that among their collaborations, this is their best. In that it is focused. It is, you know, for a, a long run time, it is focused. It is a focused story. Really um, zeroing in on the character of uh, Hen- Hendrik. And I felt the progression of the character felt more engaging and felt more natural. Yeah, I don't want... I, I'm trying to, like discuss the film with its own merit and not in comparison with the other films that they collaborated on but it's just like I can't avoid to feel that oh this is actually good this (laughs) is actually good kind of great sometimes even because it's really working and um, I found the dilemma of this artist just trying to survive slash take advantage of the situation that he's in really engaging because I don't know um um, I, I recently I've been really starting to think like, you know, because when, you know, right now it's, it's not, um, it's not new that f- the world has been falling apart for like more than one year now. I mean, it's been a long time coming. Um, like I was in my overthinking head, I was already thinking like, how would I survive if things get worse? And, um, that idea is really sticking with me recently. Recently, meaning last year. <laughs> so, um, the film has this story that I just like. Yes, I, I want to listen. I want to. I want to watch this. I want to understand it. Um, but true to form, I think it still kind of drops in the second half. <laughs> but overall, I think it's a more. It's definitely more interesting, more coherent, and more. Um, more better. Better. <laughs> I think it's just better um, than the other collaborations that they had. Um, I do want to ask, um, what did you... Are the... Because, you know, we, we, we've, we've been following the Oscars for quite a while now. And um, World War II Nazi themes were just, like, everywhere. Yeah. Especially when you cover this category and they're like, yeah, swastika here, swastika there. <laughs> um, what do you think of its take on this? Because this is not necessarily war, but pre-war, coming into it, but how it depicts that thread of Nazism on the rise. I, I think it, I enjoyed the way that it um, sort of depicted Nazism and sort of like outside of, it wasn't a story of like war or like concentration camps necessarily it was more about thought policing, if anything. And I don't know, and kind of relating it to now, I, th- I think what's so interesting is obviously now um, movie stars and public figures are all um, you know very online, very political or whatnot. And this kind of feels like um, our main character, you know, had all these, you know, quote unquote good progressive political beliefs but then like sold them out in order to get more famous and it does 
and also to you know stay safe and uh kind of make it through this time and it does just kind of feel like you know it asks the question like when you're actually in hot water do you stick to your guns or do you sort of uh not necessarily crumble but adapt to um whoever's in power whatever's in reign so i think that like the nazis as sort of this uh evil force that he either can fight against or um, befriend and work with what was an interesting depiction yeah because i I agree with that because and i i I also appreciate how the film depicted that because i don't think it's ever going to be as clear i think people deal with compromise like almost every day not even in the most extreme of circumstances but um but in this case it is kind of extreme but it's you know it's going to be extreme, mm-hmm. but it's almost in this slow downward spiral that he's going to get into because he also has this pretense of like, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. He believed in that delusion that he'll be fine. And he is kind of fine. Um, the film shows <clears throat> him kind of benefiting from that rising ideology while the people around him are starting to suffer. Um, we see um, that uh, we see Mikles, uh, the the former uh, <laughs> adversary, whatever, that became part of his uh, theater, and that person was executed. And then you have I had this fascinating relationship that he had with this dance instructor. Yeah, I. I want to know, or I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this section of the film, or the subplot. Um, I don't know if it's uh, necessarily good or bad, but it just fascinated me, because for the first time in doing this podcast, meaning doing Nazi films on like a regular basis, like inject them to me. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I'm seeing a black German experience. Exactly. I, what I found sort of strange almost about this section is the this poor woman never leaves her dance studio. <laughs> I, I think we've only, we only see her sort of in the, these, kind of strangely filmed long sex scenes. And um, I, I, I would love if she were more ingrained in the narrative, because I think what you're talking about is true. Like we haven't really seen like a um, black German experience during this time period. And especially this sort of interracial coupling, I, I think it'd be an interesting perspective. And I'd like if it was a little more, central to the movie rather than just sort of like a window dressing because we spent a lot of time in that dance studio but it never really moves the story forward yeah i think that's the cost of uh film really being so dead focused on hendrik is that um and that yeah i would agree that chapter feels like uh the narrative kind of stops or that more of like just ex, not necessarily exploration, but just like I don't know if this is just me coming off of like oh it's fascinating, 
to see. And I don't know if it's really helpful <laughs> in a film or whatever, but it also kind of raises the stakes because that that dilemma, is, I haven't seen it before, and it is a interesting dilemma. Like, what do you do if, if you're a German at the time and you are truly a German, you just happen to be black and you've, like, I'm not, an, I'm not an immigrant, you know, who's coming in and they're forcing me out. No, I'm from here and now I have to run. And that was <clears throat> something that's just, I think that's why I was just interested in that section. I didn't even like almost notice of like, is this serving something in this narrative? <laughs> but I was just like so drawn. Like, oh, we, we have this. And um, I was just hooked on that. However... Yeah, there is a there's a story to mine there, and um, the film is just so dead set on following Hendrik and Hendrik alone, and um, yeah, that sex scene was um, I don't know like are they gonna have sex or like <laughs> what is oh are they playing uh, this is stunts okay <laughs> there's a lot of things going on in the sex scene but uh, yeah it feels like in a different space space from the rest of the film. And I think kind of to what you were talking about earlier with your like initial reactions to the film, uh, this was, I kind of feel like I enjoy the arc of the film and sort of like the, the drama of it and like what it has to say more than I enjoy it on a scene by scene basis. And I think that like, this is a good subplot of like, sometimes the scenes don't really add up, but like from yeah. a, th- 3,000 foot view, Mephisto has like a really interesting arc. And as someone who's seen the other collaborations, <laughs> that feels like something that the director usually does. It's like um, scene by scene, it doesn't really like have much impact, but it's in the the succession of scenes which are like, oh, okay. You know, and then when you just realize it like from hindsight, oh, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And um, that's I don't know what to make of that, um, that strategy, that storytelling strategy. Um, I'm still thinking of those films before, and I'm like, um, it has impact, but I don't know if it's really, really working, or it, am I just being, I, do I just have an impact based on the story it's telling, or how it's being told? I think that's my confusion with the way this story unfolds. Yeah, and I think also, too, like you were talking about, the the film is so laser-focused on Heinrich that it its success or failure is determined on how much you're invested in this character. And it took me a little bit to sort of get invested in, in him. Um, I, I think it was, like, when he was kicking out that one person from his theater company was when I was like, okay, I think I've, like, got a handle on this person. And it was interesting... To then watch his downfall from sort of that moral high ground but um but yeah it's it is such a character piece when it maybe doesn't need to be or it brings in other elements rather than just being this like one thing and i think it, it's success or failure sort of rests on your perception or interest in the character i think hmm how to phrase this um I think Klaus Marie Brandauer is a solid actor. Mm-hmm. Um, out of the performances that I've seen him, including his Oscar nominated performance for Out of Africa, I think this is his best. I would agree with that as well. <laughs> yeah. 
but he doesn't immediately strike me as an actor that I would be interested in immediately. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to phrase that more uh, better. <laughs> I'm sure it sounded bad, but that's how I would phrase it. It's like I, I'm because you know we have those actors and like oh yeah let let's watch it even if it's just like um, I don't know him playing himself or whatever. Yes, with Klaus Merbinder, I have to warm up, like I said, and with this one, I don't know. Um, I f- I I really started. This is one the one that I kind of had. Uh, easier way in because I already see him struggling. <laughs> yeah. Like the first scene is him struggling. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and <clears throat> that scene is kind of jarring because you have this like opera outside, like, like calm art. And then you have this person screaming inside and you don't know exactly where he is in that story yet. Um, but he manages to show that. But I don't know. It's probably just... Um, It's a. He's a good actor. He is. I I don't want to talk shit of him, but. Well, it's the it's the difference between being an actor and a movie star, um, like, I I think it's when people say someone's a movie star, I think it gets a bit of a bad rap. But like star power and star charisma is something that can't be be taught and. You know, there are certain people like a Brad Pitt or a Julie Roberts where the minute they're on screen, you're you're hooked, and then it's they they have to lose you, not gain you. And I, I think Klaus Maria Brandauer is an, an actor first, and maybe not necessarily a movie star. In, in a weird way, though, I think that that where I found or what I kind of found interesting about his performance was I found him really engaging at in full makeup as Mephisto. And I I wonder if it is this sort of like him as a person, like playing Heinrich, the character is you take a bit of time to warm up to him. He's maybe not as interesting on first glance, but when he gets into makeup and like puts on the garb and like inhabits the character, that's sort of when a new spark is alive. I found the word. Thank you. <laughs> I found the word. <laughs> Light bulb moment. I think. Well, first of all, I'm happy that you know uh, he he even if he is not this like, uh, even if he is not, like like a Brad Pitt or whatever, he has this career of like lead roles and I'm like yes you know yes for, for character actors being in lead performances on a regular basis like yes, um, I would say that. It probably comes down to he has this facade of impenetrability mm-hmm. always in the beginning, mm-hmm. and it also kind of sh- no, not, not not this one, and it takes time for that to be peeled off that layer. Yeah, and the thing with Mephisto is that it's already starting with him falling apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Because like I don't I don't want to follow someone that I just respect. I want to follow a story of someone that I can understand what's happening. And I think with this one it worked because it started on a good note and on a good note of him already like oh there's something happening to this and I and I'm caring. And yeah, like you said, that casting, casting him in the lead role is weaponized once he is wearing that um, makeup because then he becomes this 
enigmatic screen presses. Like you don't know exactly. Like <clears throat> he's so expressive when he has those ma- he has that makeup. Oh yeah. But you also don't know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing if you're that this performance is keeping me on my toes. Like I don't know. He's saying something, but I don't know what it means. You know, with his eyes and the way he changes his face. Like even when he meets the prime minister after the performance, I'm like, I, you know, there's something going on in his mind, and the film captures that quite well. But he's also not letting you know everything, so you're guessing every time, and you know that's when like, him being cast in this lead role really works because he is a his um maybe not star presence but screen presence mm-hmm. becomes so strong absolutely and and i think too it's tricky when you're watching him play mephisto so many times at different points in the movie i think it's an actor's challenge how do you make uh each appearance of yourself as mephisto feel different and sort of that was kind of how i was able to track th- the arc is sort of how he's inhabiting this character on stage and it sort of becomes like less of more the role becomes more of him and less of something he has to access which I find interesting and I uh, I'm really glad you called out the moment where he meets with the prime minister in in full makeup that was uh, something that I really love that it's sort of it, it kind of feels like when a teacher is like, you see them out in real life, like to see this person in like still full character garb, but outside of the stage is just really interesting. But also you see how it's become so much of his personage that he's still taking this role to go see the, the, the prime minister. It's like the characteristics of Mephisto is kind of seeped directly into him. Yeah. And I also appreciate that sometimes you already don't know what's... I mean, is he still in the role? Or is... You know, that, that role that he has as Mephisto is um, really starting to take a larger importance in the story and in him as a character because the, the journey that he has is gradual yet something that's built with so much tension. I mean, I think the turning point is when he leaves for Vienna, I think, to shoot a film. And then people were like, well, now he can escape. And he decides to come home. And then you feel the film change very subtly. Like, everything's more uptight. And it's now because of this dominating Nazism really rising. And it's so subtle, and yet you see him now finally become from, like, a hardcore fighter for what he believes in to someone who just like, well, I got a compromise. And then how, I don't know. Until when do you, until which, until what point do you sell out? Like, you know, that, I think that he, and it's not just that, you know, he's also trying to convince himself that he's still doing good, that, you know, he is helping people around him. So the theme of him being an actor 
in a performance in a play. It's not just him performing as an actor in the story, but he is performing outside of the play and now he has to do these things and when is when you know when when he is collaborating with the nazis um put it that way when is that just a performance and when is that really him starting to really rub shoulders genuinely to these people the line gets blurred and it's wonderful absolutely and you also see like once he comes back from that trip with vienna he He's very, that sort of Klaus Maria Brandauer, like guardedness is what he's displaying to his friends and colleagues outside of the stage. Like you, I feel like people can kind of sense that he's not telling them the full story of where he's at or what he's going on. He's kind of keeping everything close to the chest. It's, you're right, the, the unknowability is really interesting. That works. It, it that that his unknowable persona works. I don't know. Probably Hungarian Hungarian audiences disagree with me and actually thinks it's a very relatable person. I I don't know, but um, I don't. Know. It's probably just because I saw. I always see him like in these superior roles, like you know, whether the the Baron that is getting married to Meryl Streep. Or this um, magician in Nazi era in Hanusen, or this colonel uh, that is uh, kind of favored by the Archduke, probably uh, someone in the government, <laughs> and Colonel Raiden, or in this one, an artist that rises. And I think that's also thing that why I empathize with him more in this one is that he's not in a position of power at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I always need losers <laughs> in films <laughs> to follow. It's just that when you have that casting, I, we're still in casting. Um, and um, when you have that casting decision of this actor has this persona, and then how you integrate him in the story, how you utilize that actor, it can work if you know how to use that. Because even even great actors can be miscast when they are misplaced or misused in the story. And with this one, I agree with you. Those moments of like, the thing that I don't like him that much, uh, the thing that I don't like that much about him in other performances, like that, that, um, that sometimes that occasional stiffness or like upright or like that, that works in certain scenes here. So that's why I feel that Mephisto is more fully realized because it feels more well thought of and it's impact on me personally when these elements just come together and yeah Klaus Maria Bandauer yeah (laughs) he's good he's good he's a good actor yeah oh yeah he is yeah um are you gonna say something oh oh no but uh one of the things I kind of like the Actually, I am going to say something now that I think about it. Um, I think what I also liked about what you're saying is it is interesting that, like, he doesn't start out from a place of being successful and then has to um, choose whether or not he wants to buddy up with the Nazis. I think having him start out as an unsuccessful actor is really interesting because it's almost like it's saying you can talk a big game when you... Um, don't have any money or don't have any power like it's all 
it's not something you've ever wielded. So you feel like, oh, if I got power, I would be different than all these other people. And the fact that he then gains power and then uses it in the wrong way is just a really interesting flip. It's like, no, actually, you're you're just the same as the people that you were criticizing in the beginning. And it, it was just sort of an interesting, uh, another interesting wrinkle and another good reason why it was good the way the movie started. Yeah. And I remember that there's there's a certain... There's a certain filmmaker that would probably start this in the end. Mm-hmm. Or like when he's already an established person and then go back. I like that it really goes chronologically because you see the gradualness of it. You're not... You... I don't know. I should have checked this. Um, it is... This film is partially based on a specific German actor. But... You know, not knowing where it's gonna go helps this case because you're just in for the ride. You're not setting expectations like, oh, this is where he's going. Okay, then I'll follow that. No, with this one, it's just clear. And when when he reaches the inevitable, you're you're there with him because you're right there in the beginning when he's struggling backstage, when he's trying to put up this Bolshevik theater to promote communism and then when he stupidly decides to come back to Berlin, when he is having this power now, when he's regularly portraying Mephisto already, and then when he realizes that um, it's like a house of cards, you know, the, the, the assumption that he has that he is, he's good, you know, he's going to be fine. That, when he, when Sony becomes disillusioned, that journey becomes more engaging because we started where he started. We didn't have this, like, um, I don't know. I think you, a lot of cases, not a lot of cases. I don't want to generalize. There are cases when a film starts in the end and we have this, as an audience, has a superiority feeling. Like, we know where you're going to end. And that sometimes kind of forms a detachment to the character and more attachment to the plot. Because I know where you're gonna end up. It, when it, when we start at the end, you know we we know, but when we this one, we don't know where he's gonna end. So we're just clinging to him. And I'm also thinking a while ago of what you said that there are some places in this film that, like you said, you said the 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 relationship with the dance instructor. Like I'm not I'm still not sure if it's necessarily it that storyline is necessarily that long or it should have been more deeply explored or more complex. But the fact that we're sticking with him, this character, regardless of what's happening around, is a choice. <laughs> is a choice. Yeah. That I'm not sure if it fully works, but it does. I think it does. No, and um I I really enjoyed what you said about like glad that we didn't give sort of in media res like Bet you're wondering how I got here in this role of Mephisto performing for the Nazis. Um, I always kind of think that that's a storytelling crutch that especially now like movies fall upon because they're like, we're going to hook you in the first minute because we're going to promise that it will get interesting at some point. (laughs) So I like that it kind of trusted its audience of like, you'll, you'll get interested in this guy. You'll, uh, go on this journey. You've already paid your ticket. Come on. Let's 
uh, we we have you now. But I it was just interesting to uh, this being a different sort of tale of Nazism. I just I couldn't shake the feeling that this feels like what happens after the end of Cabaret when the Nazis uh-huh. are watching the performance. Yeah. Like that sort of connective tissue just kind of what was what I kept thinking about. Yeah. First of all, I, I, I can't believe I did not remember Cabaret with this one because that's also <laughs> the, like, it's about the inevitability of the rise of Nazism at the time and how the small, the, the breadcrumbs really mm-hmm. escalate into this big thing. Um, which I think the film does well. S- same thing with Cabaret. And it's also about performers. I am disappointed in myself. <laughs> That I did not make that connection. Well, no, you, you you were just enjoying Mephisto. I was just like, you're standing on Sally Bowles' shoulder. <laughs> I'm not sure if enjoying is the right word, but I was engaged. <laughs> um, second thing, I just realized that um, the, f- the first um, full-length script that I wrote... Um, started near the end so oh. i'm like no 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 it works sometimes it works sometimes it does work yeah sometimes it does work yeah well i i i think too that's because i just reviewed both cherry and united states versus billy holiday both of which do very bad jobs with framing devices so. i am I'm looking forward to Billie Holiday because of Andrew Day. She's wonderful in it. Yeah. And uh, Cherry. That could wait. All right. So um, (laughs) (laughs) um, another distinctive thing that um, I saw in the film is how, you know, because in in Cabaret, we see, um, (laughs) now I'm framing things for Cabaret. (laughs) Uh, We see... The story of the rise of Nazism, but it's in the background. We really see what's happening inside. Is there a name for the cab? Oh my god! Is there a name for the cabaret in cabaret? You know, I I should know that as well because I also rewatched it recently. But I'm just like, oh, it's Joel Gray's cabaret. <laughs> yeah, and I th- I was thinking probably the place is Wilcomen, but it's not. It's not a time. No, is it, it, isn't it like Kit Crack? Club or am I thinking of Kit something? Club, yeah, yes. Kit Club. Perfect. I'm glad I can still keep my gay card. We're good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't even know there was a name for the cabaret. I'm like, oh my gosh, I should be straight now. Um, we see the le- we see that happening in the background while we're sticking with the Kit Kat Club and what's happening inside in Sally Bosa's own drama. With this one, the film is long, but I I don't even consider it an epic because it is really. Central, um, so focused not just on him, but his struggles to go big and stay safe. I think that a character that we see that is both willingly and unwillingly, at times, depending on a scenario, compromising. Because like I, I want to save lives. Because I know I. It's like I know the right thing, but I also want to. I also want to be big and I want to benefit from the system as long as I can, you know, like, well, the system is there. Might as well take advantage of it. And like, I love the film is non-judgmental in it. It, it, it certainly explores those themes in, in ways that they're not necessarily the deepest, but they are there enough for you to have something to contemplate on. 
um, those themes of like, um, until when is complacency forgivable? And like, until when is compromise okay? And like, how do you play with evil? Um, like, <clears throat> you know, that <laughs> I just threw like big concepts in my life. Um, th those things and they trickle down to scenes that like you said a while ago, I liked it that now it made sense in my mind. Like they don't usually make sense <laughs> per scene, but as a whole, I think that is because I think, I think that is because the commitment of the storytelling is more really character based that it's really willing to like, well, a plus B equals C yeah. you, you do the math when you watch it. Well, also, I, I think kind of with it being so laser focused, if, if there is any downside to that approach, it does feel like there's not a world outside of whatever Heinrich's experiencing in that moment. So mm -hmm. even just like the broader things of what's happening that the Nazis are doing, like, or the, the seeds of war aren't prevalent because they're not within his purview as a character. Yeah. And I think that maybe like specifically i think that's why it doesn't justify its runtime or doesn't justify being an epic because it has so little interest in actual scope outside of this one person yeah um which i think it's it's interesting in itself is what we see how do you immerse in this world that you know is wrong um but yeah like i said until until when is it gonna engage you like you you got it it's it's in the dna of the story that it is following someone inside and like how do you capture someone from inside i mean i think that the best thing that we could ask for is how it affects the people around him uh, directly like miklas and um i forgot the name of the dance instructor which is very <laughs> awful of me <laughs> To be honest, I feel like the movie also forgot her name as well. <laughs> There's yeah. any defense. I am. <laughs> uh, no, it's not that. Uh, yeah, so you know, it's 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 a tough thing to weigh because the film is decidedly about that, and uh, I just don't know if it uh, paid off. It's uh, insistence on staying with that perspective, which, oh, Karen Boyd, Karen Boyd is the name of the. I'm so so wonderful. We did it. God bless Karen. <laughs> yeah, Karen. Oh gosh, um, because the film is decided that it's not, it's not. We cannot. I thought. I don't think we can complain about the film, not knowing what it wants to say, what it wants to tell. It knows it. It's just not sure if it's the best thing to do. But, you know, at least it has a vision mm -hmm. that is uh, solid and it really knows that, all right, we're going to focus on this person, whatever happens. Um, yeah, again, <laughs> hearing what I said, it's not probably not the best thing, but it's stuck with its guns. Yeah. And also, yeah, the film delved into, like, art cannot exist in a bubble. Exactly. It cannot, and um, we see, you know, even going back to that meeting the prime minister, it's literally 
the character of Mephisto getting off the stage, meeting an audience member, face to face with a prime minister. And now I look at it because at first when I saw the photos of the film, like, what is this? But now it makes sense like, oh, you know, it's that it's a confronting thing. And yeah. Well, also too, and I, this just kind of came to me, like he's destroying the illusion of the world of that he's built with the character. This character is now stepping off the stage into real life and interacting with the the prime minister. This sort of remove between an audience watching a play has kind of been destroyed by him still being in makeup being in there and i think that that's just like an interest another interesting thing that he's like almost selling out his art yeah it is and um even if you know when when, when he was still in the bolshevik theater he knew the power of art mm-hmm. he knew that it's not existing in a bubble but when he starts to do mephisto in service of the nazi regime of the Nazi party party goers, <laughs> party goers, <laughs> the party people. Hey, no, they had the, a party, so yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the Nazis. It's it could have been easier. The Nazis, the party people. Um, so it's still, I I, I love it when when he, he feels like he has to do it. Even but because artists struggle in this kinds of scenarios um i mean we're struggling right now (laughs) we're struggling here in my country about arts Mm -hmm. and um it's just fascinating when it's embodied in that scene you know that when the art is finally inserted because art is supposed to be something that comments on this on on reality you know whether directly or not whether outwardly politically or not mm-hmm. um and then now this art is in service of this fascist of this rising fascism w- where does an artist go what yeah. what what is the artist now you know when he, when his its function he's not function that the artist is not functioning anymore for the purpose that he has and it's interesting that you know the one that the Germans stuck with is Mephisto this uh, blood sucking vampire um, but it makes you think like well who is the villain in the story is it is it Hendrik trying to benefit from this society or is it actually um, the general that's sucking on Sucking on, sucking on the art. So well, yeah. well, I think also, I would almost say it's this, the second one because uh, Henrik thinks that he is essentially like being a Robin Hood and like uh, benefiting from these bad people, but it's fine because he's a good guy. But actually, the general and the Nazi party now have. The, their own star and their own command of art to of an artist to do what they will and to also you know be sort of a mouthpiece for them and be sort of a prominent figure for them so i i think he's selling himself up for comfort and their 
they've they've sucked his entire personage from him and essentially have co-opted his image now yeah this kind of systems eat you up like oh you know we've been a while ago we mentioned about like the handmaid's hill and like Mm -hmm. you know june is lucky that she had like either commanders that are in love with her or (laughs) a commander that is willing to run a resistance under his nose but this is just promotion for season four notes. <laughs> um, premiering April twenty eighth, but now it's promo. <laughs> yeah, but she's not the June anymore from season one. No, you know, so that that kind of thinking, and I see that also in Mephisto, and it's really fascinating because I, you know, when before we started recording, like minutes, I tried to cram and like let's read about Miss Mephisto and. Uh, the literature and I'm like I give up I don't get what this is so I I I know there's a person out there who's better at commenting the relevance of Mephistopheles Mephistopheles the character Mephistopheles Mephistopheles yeah I I remember because it's uh Dr. Faustus right who um wrote it yeah I remember like doing like some sort I studied him a bit in college, and I'm, like, forgetting all of it now. So what good did that do me? Nothing. Oh, <laughs> I've never encountered Faust in literature in college. I don't know if it's a good thing or not. Uh, <laughs> um, Mephistopheles, I only know Mr. Mistopheles. Wow. I mean, how would Mr. Mistopheles fare under the Nazi regime? Would he sell out, or would he... Uh, he stand true to his Bolshevik guns. You know, yeah. The Jellicles, no. <laughs> the Jellicles are the Nazis. They're sacrificing <laughs> other cats. Oh, that's one of the last things I've seen in the cinema. And I'm like, I was hospitalized after watching it. So, like, <laughs> perfect. We, 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 um, we all had to be hospitalized after seeing cats. Yeah, well, I can't believe... I mean, I don't regret paying for it. <laughs> But I did watch the because uh, it screened on December twenty five, and um, I, I watched it. I think like on the eighth of January, and I still watched the original cut with a Judy Dench wedding ring. So oh like, God bless! Yeah, Judy Dench getting that money. But are there any other scenes from Mephisto that you want to highlight or mention? Um, I feel like. I feel like I covered. Uh, I I didn't have many, many notes, so thank you for for keeping me me going. I feel like I remembered more of the movie as I talked about it. <laughs> and the thing is, I remembered more of the film when I when I was talking to you. <laughs> I mean, also blurring. Um, some of the scenes that I think are kind of worth mentioning are are um, the scene when he deals makes a deal with the general for, uh for Juliet, the dance instructor. And, you know, the the general is oh, despicable. Let's use the word. He said, like, well, like, this is, this is a Negro woman. Like, why are you trying to do this? Blah, 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 blah. And that's one of those moments where, like, yep, you have to suck up if you're going to engage with this kind of uh, society up close and this close. You know, he's with a general. Like, yeah, that's one of the things that you have to do and that's what he feels that he has to do but when we reach the end until what end and um 
we also see the disappointment I think in the people around him and with also with Juliet uh, about that. Um, what did you do? You remember the scene when uh, there are dancing Mephistos around him? Yes. Yeah. What do you think of that? I, because I at first I was just like from a just pure watching standpoint, I was like, oh, this is this is cool. This is weird. I'm I'm into this. Um, <laughs> but. I think it is that he almost just, like, feels haunted by this character that has, like, taken... I I think he realizes that this character has, like, taken on something larger than, like, what he intended, and he didn't intend to get this far deep. But it is... These are just, like, reflections of, of him and his work. Like, he has... He has created these things that are now kind of swarming him. Yep, and it's almost like it's it's like a, a heightened version of like you know when when artists like oh, I don't want to see myself like yes. in this thing that I made, but this one is just like it goes, it's coming back to him, and now this art that he has done, that is in service of the Nazi regime, is now being used f- to him. I don't know if against him, and you see how ridiculous can it get? You know when, uh, when art is being controlled and is used against the artist, and like, you know, so like it's it's a confronting thing, and it is a weird moment. Yes, it is, and um, <laughs> it is striking because yeah. it is another visual representation of like where has he, like this is where he's ending up. You know, it's ridiculous. And it's his art is not his art anymore. Mm-hmm. It's being used for fun, yeah. and he's not being true to himself. And it comes back to him, and it's haunting him. And it's a haunting imagery to see like multiple Mephistos um, circling around, like in a demon. And that scene when he tries to talk to the general again, but the general has had it. And the general says, mind your own business. And it slowly has this realization that he no- he realizes that he's just, he's not one of the powerful. The people in power know they're, he's sucking up. And he they see through him because he thought he was being wise. Like, I'm the Robin Hood of this. I'm going to do good while I'm in this position of power. No, you're only being given a lifeline. Yeah. Or like you're you're at the mercy of the people in power. You're not in good hands. You're not safe from this. And you push the wrong button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ooh, what do you think of that ending with those lights? Uh, I mean... It, he's just, I, 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 I think it's just an interesting, where, where, where did you go from this? Like when you've just sold out so much, you're, you've just kind of fully transformed into this. When lights come up, you're, you're still this, this is who you have to live with as yourself. And it's just, it's kind of, it's a haunting moment. Yeah, it is. And uh, 
you know, what, what a way to go. And however, I was thinking like, because <clears throat> in the moment, I'm like, huh, how did you end up with this ending? Uh, like, I'm also not sure. And I've seen the first 22 hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> like, what's happening? And then I was thinking of like, yeah, because he, before he's putting on the white makeup. Yeah. And now when you see him, see him, see him, <laughs> see him. When, when you see him, he's now told, I mean, he's white, but he's yeah. not that white. He's white, white in that light. And like, it's almost like a representation of like the dancing Mephistos again. Yeah. That it's circling back to him. And now the lights are following him again. Like, this is, like you said, this is where you end up, mm-hmm. you know, when you've, you've allowed yourself to go into this rabbit hole of selling out and trying to survive while, again, no judgment with him trying to survive. I mean, I might sell out. I, I don't know. But when you have, you, you should not lose that reality that you are selling out. You're at the mercy of these people. You're not in a good place. You're just good for now. And that's a very confronting moment when the light, the white things just follow him. Um, it's it, 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 it's as the wise sage Monique once said, when you do clownery, the, the clown comes back to bite. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, it registers strongly. Um... <laughs> yeah, aside from the stunning visuals, it just focuses on his face. And uh, I don't know what to feel about that final like uh, freeze frame and then has this music that comes after it. But yeah, it almost plays out like a confrontation in, in a grandiose way because like <laughs> you have to set up like four strong spotlights for this. And like, are, are we shooting someone? You're you're not shooting him. Like, why is this confrontation? But I think it's it's more of um a metaphorical. I guess it plays out better more in a metaphorical reading than a literal reading. Yeah. But it's a strong visual imagery to end. Yeah. Gratuliere. Diese Maske ist perfekt. Sie ist das Böse selbst. Diese Maske ist das heilige Böse. Dabei ist ihr Blick doch aus der Nähe so mild. Die weiche Händedruck ist Höfgen eigenartig. Aber das scheint das Geheimnis der Schauspielkunst zu sein. Kraft und Geist zu zeigen, während man in Wirklichkeit schwach ist. <lacht> naja. Ich kann mir vorstellen, dass Sie sich außerordentlich gründlich und lange auf diese Rolle vorbereitet haben. Mit meinem ganzen Leben, Herr Ministerpräsident. Richtig, nur so geht es. Das ist das Geheimnis der Größe. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about how Mephisto won the Oscar. It premiered in Hungary in February, but had its formal release, formal release, in October 8th. And it premiered in as well in May where it won Best Screenplay. It also screened at the New York Film Festival in September 29 and was released in the United States in March 22 of 1982. Again, this was Hungary's first win and fifth nomination. Um, 
trying to find um, it was nominated for BAFTA and and won National Board of Review in 1982. Um, it didn't get a Golden Globe nomination, but at the same time, these were the times when they would nominate like Chariots of Fire yeah. and Gandhi for a foreign language <laughs> I, I was looking at that. I was just like, oh, there is no overlap between the Globes and the Oscars this year. <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't make any sense. Like, But here we are. And now we're talking about Minari. <laughs> and for Electrum. Um, yeah, so now let's take a look at the other nominees because this is quite a group. Um, and then probably we can assess later after we discuss the nominees if, if was it an easy win for Mephisto or yeah. anything. Because as far as I can see, all these films had some pedigree one way or the other. The nominees were The Boat is Full from Switzerland, Man of Iron from Poland, Muddy River from Japan, and Three Brothers from Italy. So, Chris, which one would you like to discuss first? Um, let's go in the order that you uh, you just laid out. So we'll start with The Boat is Full. All right. So um, alphabetical. All right. So The Boat the boast. <laughs> the boat is full from Switzerland. It premiered in Berlin, where it won Silver Bear, and also screened in the Chicago International Film Festival. It's directed by Marcus Imhoof, and it's in the National Board of Review Top Five. It is about a group of Jewish people plus um, a Nazi soldier that runs away from a running train going to a concentration camp, and they ended up in Switzerland. And they went to this house of a couple who um, is going to hide them. But because they're also planning to seek refuge, uh, they tried to pretend to be a, an all-Jewish family. <laughs> um, but, of course, it's not going to go that well. Um, what do you think of The Boat is Full? Um, so this was kind of like my, my thoughts overall of the rest of the category. I, I, I think a lot of the other nominees were a lot more dry than Mephisto was. Um, specifically the boat is full. There were moments, there were moments that I enjoyed. Like, I think that there's this great scene where the, um, people who, uh, had escaped are all trying to figure out what their new identity is going to be. And they're trying to figure out what is like the most believable um, amalgamation of all of them into this Jewish family. Um, but uh, I think like the overarching theme I like, and it's kind of similar to Mephisto in that you, you can't, there, there's no sort of being neutral about the, the Holocaust or about Nazism, you kind of can't throw your arms up and be like, we're Switzerland, we're not, we're disengaging, we're not getting involved. Because then what happens and what you see to these characters is that they, they aren't given refuge because they're just like, we're staying out of this, this isn't our problem. And then they're uh, murdered <laughs> uh, in, in the end. So I thought it was an overarching good point, but it's just very flatly shot and I, I just think the movie kind of you know th there's it, it just kind of felt very 
bare bones and it would connect with me at a couple points and there is an interesting story to be told but it just never fully materialized into something that I was consistently engaged by I don't know what were your thoughts I loved it (laughs) 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 and I'm like when you were trying to say your thoughts I'm like how do I transition? Oh, no, 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 no. Go, go, go for <laughs> yeah, your love of the film. I love the whiplash of it. Um, what you mentioned about it being like bare bones is what I actually loved about it. Oh, nice. Um, because um, unlike, for example, Mephisto and other films about um, World War II that sometimes it, it, they get bloated. You know, it's not mm-hmm. even about the runtime, but it's about the setting up of the story. That sometimes they're trying, some films are trying to really put it in on our face that this is important. Mm-hmm. So that's why the contextualization of the story can get heavy handed. So you feel, oh, it's important. Um, but with the both is full, it's so matter of fact. It's again, I don't know. Um, I've probably seen way um, a lot of Nazi stories <laughs> at this point in this covering this category, really. Um, but um, I I love how it zeroes into these characters, almost like in a break break <laughs> breakneck pace of just like how to do this, how to do this, how to do this, and it never really lets go, and. Each and every one of the characters, I has something in, at stake, and I feel those stakes constantly in the film, and it's almost this wonderful dance of, uh, especially when the the police police comes or inspector, because then it's like it almost becomes this dance of a performance for them. And I think this is a case where in my, it, it really worked for me, the matter of factors of it. Um, and it's also the film that left me really with, a, it has a strong ending in my opinion. Oh and, yeah, the ending was yeah. a gut punch. Yeah, it is. And um, uh uh, I just want to give a shout out to my mom who's not listening to this podcast, but she watches everything that I watch for this <laughs> podcast. And like, so we've we've been through some European erotica and I'm like, yes, mom, it's been nominated. Let's get over it. Uh, <laughs> um, this one, she was, she could not believe the ending. And I thought, yeah, that's why this this story is really powerful because I cannot believe we're they're sending back people to their deaths and the way that the film ends is true to most of it in that it's very matter of fact it's it's very bare bones that in the end I think the simplicity leaves an impact and that it doesn't have these easy way easy sentimentality and then when we see that bridge where they go back to Germany it just just punches me in the heart I'm like oh gosh and this is a case of like I said the simplicity works for the better of it but that's me because obviously we disagree on that but yeah it's uh, 
it's it's a ride it is a ride but i i I will agree with you uh on the ending i I thought it was i thought it was also like it was surprising we kind of knew that these were the stakes i think it was and maybe this is like my own perception of just like watching this movie but i think i was preordained for something that was going to be a little more standard and I was just like okay they're just gonna harbor these people and like things will be fine and I guess I didn't expect the movie to actually fulfill on its promise of its stakes and send them back to their death um and I thought that that was really interesting so it made me appreciate things that were happening in the film more in hindsight and I think maybe that is just like you know setting expectations up front or not even that I think the movie should do that but I think just as a viewer um going with like less preconceived notions can maybe help help enjoy the 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 film a bit more but I really uh, I really enjoyed your take on it thank you (laughs) no I I I, but it's hard because even in films that I think (laughs) um rarely especially because both of us like follow film regularly constantly um it's almost impossible to come into a film without knowing anything yeah like like even in this case like for example when when you i i'm check the boat is full um even when you go to the wikipedia page and it doesn't really say a lot aside from uh yeah cast meaning of title See also. <laughs> Those are the only contents of the Wikipedia page. Even that, the fact that it's nominated for the Oscars, the fact it's about World War II, already sets expectations. And uh, yeah, it's it's also a struggle with me. I, I feel I am I empathize with that. I have films that covering this podcast. I know I have I did not um have much appreciation on because of the expectation that I had. Um it also happened with one contender this year, but I'm not going to say which one. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh, um, I actually, there are two. One, two contenders. I, I'll, I'll say it, F it. Uh, Mank, I was disappointed. I had an expectation, I was disappointed. Promising Young Woman, I had a different expectation, but it was better than I expected. Wonderful. Yeah. It's not just the quality of the film. It's it's where the story went. And I know there are a lot of thought pieces about that. This is not a podcast for Promising Young Woman. So, um, yeah. The boat is full. Um, I also thought that. I thought they're going to be getting away with this. And I think it's a testament to how um, us as, as viewers engage in how they told a story and the expectations that they were, you know, because... <laughs> They were really doing it like, yeah, this is like, I love, I, I, I love seeing this one because I, I don't know. I, I, I want to see this kinds of reactions to these kinds of um, situations in life because I'm probably that kind of person that um when we have this huge thing that's coming, like, oh, there's whatever. I'm more of like, then let's do something, you know, mm-hmm. that snap, snap, snap pacing. Mm-hmm. And I love I love seeing it like that's me <laughs> represented like how that's how I deal with it, um, but at the same time, there's always this possibility of it failing. That I I felt that that's why, and then when they gave 
when they surrendered, like we're actually pretending, you you still have some hope, like that maybe they're gonna be taking pity. But until the very end, that's why it's it's more crushing because until the end, I think I was hoping for it to be better, and as it turns out, it's based on some true stories somewhere out there. And it's not just one story. It's the fate of many um, people who tried to escape Nazi occupation. And uh, that's why that, um, upon research, said that that, that term, um, our boat is full, is a term that they use to say to people seeking asylum, but no, we're not letting you in. And it's just crushing. It's, it's crushing to the heart. Yeah, no, I mean, and, uh, that was like... I mean, the fact that they kind of displayed at the end of how few people were um, kept in uh, Switzerland during uh, World War II as uh, refugees was really, really wild. But it's not what I expected. Yeah, so... The boat is full. (laughs) (laughs) So, Man of Iron is next from Poland. It premiered in Canada around the Palm Door. It also screened in Chicago Film International Film Festival, just like the boat is full. Directed by Andre Vajda. And I believe it is a sequel. Oh. Um, it is a sequel. I did not know that. I did not know that either. I'm learning something new uh, <laughs> with each movie in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um... It is a sequel to the film called Man of Marble. Oh, wow. And um, I only knew that because after watching the film, I reviewed... I put... Not reviewed. I don't. I tweeted something about this film and our friend Claudia Alves is like, have you seen the the first film? Like, what first film? (laughs) Oh, there's a Man of Marble? All right. But then maybe we can talk about like how it feels for us going in with a sequel directly without knowing it when we watched it. Um, it is about um, a son of an activist that is um, uh, leading a strike against this um, uh, this factory that is giving unfair labor practices to its workers. And there is this journalist coming in that is given the job of trying to discredit uh, the person and the movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's really ironic that this is a long film. I cannot say a lot about this one. Oh, um, um, absolutely. We'll be, so I'll, I'll kind of go go into my thoughts on this. Like when you were talking about a movie that feels self-important <laughs> and kind of bloated, I was just like, oh, so you're talking about Man of Iron. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think especially at around this time, like I feel like there are so many good films about um, workers' rights and about, um, you know, laborers needing good unions like this was a few years after norma ray a couple of years before silkwood um it just felt so much more preoccupied with the journalists and less so 
about the actual people that were were suffering and it just kind of i don't know i i felt that it had this air of seriousness and self-importance that sort of permeated throughout and i i only saw it a few days ago and i'm like struggling to remember most of it again we diverge oh no (laughs) um (laughs) i think this is a film that really warranted its runtime because I, this is the one that's most intimidating to program because I, I think we kind of quote unquote program the way we watch films like all right i have to watch this after this one for how many hours this is the most daunting because it's two and a half hours um but i thought it is a very powerful study of um how it really rolls you know in terms of like the, the, the struggle for rights because but then we see it from mostly from the perspective of someone who's being used to push back to to discredit that movement and it feels really honest in what it wants to say i i felt it um and then um there is this um you you feel i feel how big it is but you see how it zeroes in on these two characters. So I just felt the weight of the story so heavily that... And I would admit, this is the kind of film that slowly drew me in. It's not like The Boat is Full that started for me on a snap. Like, oh, they're on the run immediately. This one is like slowly pulling me in. But there is so much power in how it captures the 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 workers' rights movement in juxtaposition with um, this outsider coming in and how that outsider, again, slowly has this uh, gradual shift towards understanding the one that he's supposed to discredit. And it has some scenes that just leave me in awe, like, wow. And uh, and there are moments that is captured in such a way that is almost... Like, sometimes there are, there are moments in this film that instead of going to, a, like, I think that the press conference in the end where they sign this faux agreement, um, I love how that used a lot of, like, wide shots and while there are, ha- like, how to, do, how to demonstrate it, um, there is this big historical moment in the back and then there is this character moment in the side but it's in the wide shot, so you see those two juxtaposed, and it's covered in a wide shot. For example, that kind of thing that leaves me in so much um, power because it's really, I think it locates itself in the right place in terms of the story, mm-hmm. and I don't think uh, I think it's a valid um, perspective to follow the the journalist and also the the leader of the workers' rights because we also get to see how not everyone involved in the workers' rights are, are perfect. And it's not a whole thing that's perfect. And then you see the clash and then the coming together of these two elements. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it, 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 powerful. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you liked it so much. Um, no, I, I, I think I think kind of what you said about like it took a while to drew you in. Uh-huh. I feel like I just kind of like hit a wall almost with the, the self-seriousness. And even though we're following this journalist i feel like 
I, I never got a handle on why I should care about this character. I, I care about the, the workers and the workers' rights, um, but I never felt like it, it took a while for me to uh, feel like we got to them and got to follow them and learn more about them. And it felt like we were just spending a lot more time with this almost like an uh, antagonistic figure with the, the journalist that's being there to discredit. And I don't know, I, I, I liked hearing things from the worker's perspective and I felt like I was less drawn in by the conflict between them and the reporter and less invested in, in the arc. But I, I like what you're saying about the wide shots too. Like I, I think that there is really strong filmmaking that's, that's going yeah. on in, in the film. Like there is definitely a, a lot of talent involved. Yeah. And uh, there are moments where it feels like a documentary, even yeah. like, I think those are the ones that when juxtaposed again to the dramatic story at the core, especially of the activist, it feels it feels almost overwhelming. I, I, I don't know that's that's there's a power in when you see these clashing images and you know that there is some really harsh truths within those moments, especially when um, when he's trying to interview, and we see people that are participating in the in the in the, in the movement, like voicing out why, um, there are some very specific moments. They're just like, wow, you know, just like it's it's not even it it didn't the film didn't need to be, it just had to capture that. It's 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 almost like it's not embellishing greatly, but it's doing some some really like it's, it's, it's almost like Mephisto that you know I know what the filmmaker is doing and he captures it but like the boat is full it captures it almost like in a matter of fact way which for me has this accumulative power that this is kind of it gets as raw as you can uh, yeah. I also did not expect that it would be that engaging for me mm-hmm I, I like what you said, although it made me just feel like I almost wish I would have just gotten like the documentary version of it. Just like the one that's like, nope, we're going to lay the grim facts on you. This is what you're in for. Strap in. We're going to hear how the working class has been, uh, been wronged here in Poland. So I, it, it felt a little, little for me just like tried to have its cake and eat its too. And I'd rather it just feed me the vegetables of the, mm-hmm. the documentary of like what they wanted to say oh oh that, that 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 makes sense it's 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 tough when you you have to have a certain a filmmaking should have a certain discipline once mm-hmm. you try to cover these things because it, it can get too much you know there, there are films where it can get too much um what do you think of that element of someone who died near the bridge uh, I because apparently that's where the connect is with the first film oh <laughs> so wait so because I I think I kind of like 
I, I was touched by that at the end, but I was wondering yeah. when it was established. And I was just like, maybe Chris, you weren't paying attention. And like, this <laughs> is why the journalist was here and, and all this stuff. So, so the death at the bridge, that was from the first film. I think, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it, it was ambiguous in the first film. Oh. But then it's explicitly said that there was a killing there. Okay. I mean, it all felt very, like, on the waterfront for me. And I was very just like, oh, well, then I wish I was watching on the waterfront. I was being being shady to poor Man of Iron while watching Man of Iron, which is probably not the best mindset. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Claudio asked me that question, like, how, how did you watch it? Like, well, I thought it was just a backstory thing that for me works even when it's not that explicitly told. Um, I know there's something that happened there. It's it's almost like it's a trigger for the lead character of the mm-hmm. activist. And it is a death. Duh. Uh, but um, it is something at the back of my head that I know is important, but it's not well, like, that explored. And I'm kind of like, I'm glad they did not explore it because, you know, it's you know, it, there's something there, you know, there's something there in that character that you don't have to explicitly say. It's uh, really, um, it's a wise decision. And apparently there's a whole film that leads up to that. And like, oh, great. Like, well, it worked for me. <laughs> was that one um, submitted by Poland as well when it was released? Man of Iron was their Fury Road. They went with, for the sequel, but not the originals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they did not. Oh, wow. And it makes sense because I'm trying to look here. I don't know what it's at, but the man, but man of iron has this interesting story because, um, it was made in that time, uh, in between, um, communist censorship and uh, martial law in Poland. That film was made in that time frame. So there's this brief moment of like freedom, I guess. Oh, that that makes it a mo- little but, more interesting. Yeah, and so when it was submitted, actually, it was when it was submitted, it was already banned. Mm by the Polish government. And the Polish government tried to withdraw the film from Oscar consideration. But the Academy refused to let them withdraw it. The same thing that happened with Judo in 1990. Um, They banned the film, but the filmmakers were smart. They were able to find a small cinema near Hong Kong in mainland China. Mm -hmm. um, Because... Yeah, so it became eligible, and wow. now the Chinese government tried to ban, to withdraw the Oscar nomination. Like, nope, 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 you cannot. <laughs> That's also the same thing that happened with Man of Iron. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, that's I. So I, I guess that that sort of context around it does make it sort of rallying cry feel a bit more urgent. Yeah. That that is really interesting context. Yeah, and I'm looking a look at some of the writings on. I think it's in the it's in the vein of the 
of the Man of Iron because the Man of Marble also kind of integrated documentary footage. Mm-hmm. So I think it is really in the in the cinematic language of this film. Interesting. Um, yeah, Man of Iron, um, starring Robert Downey Jr. No. <laughs> wrong joke. Wrong. Sorry. That well, I mean, is, it, yeah. it does seem like there is a Man of Iron universe. The Man of Iron, Man of Marble, Man of Steel. Yeah, <laughs> Man of all kinds of rocks and hard things. Uh, that's Man of Iron from Poland. Next film is Muddy River, uh, a song by Mary J. Blige. <laughs> uh, it's from Japan. Uh, I wanted to sing it, but oh gosh. Uh, it's from Japan. It won a silver prize in Moscow. It's directed by Kohei Aguri. It's about a kid that is the son of a restaurant-owning couple near the river. And he starts talking to two children, a boy and a girl, that live inside a boat. And apparently their mother is working also on that boat. And their mother, that's why they don't see the mother often, because the mother works as a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Um, Muddy River from Japan. What do you think so about I, the film? <laughs> so I will, I will actually... Um, put on my my kind hat uh, for for Muddy River. Um, I I really uh, enjoyed my 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 time on the titular Muddy River. Um, I I think it has a strong sense of place, and I I think this storytelling is kind of weird and interesting in that it feels like it's a series of vignettes almost, um, but. I, I kind of enjoyed the pacing because I think it just does a really good job of building sort of this small community world on the um, on the river. And I just I thought the kids were just like really, really cute. And it it has a sort of Florida project esque mentality of kind of seeing the world through these kids eyes. And so when you're talking about like the mother who's a sex worker, like. I enjoyed how that was sort of like teased and alluded to because we're focused on these kids' perspectives, and I don't know I I I enjoyed it. I, I had a had a good time with it. What what were your thoughts? Uh, before I get started, there I looked at the lyrics of "Mighty River" just to I could sing it, <laughs> but uh, I couldn't because it's Mary J. Blige and she's great. I couldn't get the tone right, so I'm like, nope, let's give up. Uh, "Mighty River." Uh, this is another case where the, I think it's, I think it's also a simple, it's a told, it's a simple story told in a simple manner, mm-hmm. but that is also its strength. Yeah. Um, in that there are no pretense. We don't, we don't delve into that. We just focus on these characters. Um, I, I, I love the simplicity and it, it, it that's again I'm re- I'm repeating myself and that's that means uh, I don't have much vocabulary <laughs> but there's power in that and the film gets to explore that um, it is a story from the point of view of the children that um, doesn't shy away from um, uh, from darker themes. With, uh, but still within the realm of the childhood, and 
it's a film that I did not expect that would keep me on that would keep me guessing mm-hmm. because you like the child the child that we follow um I should also get the name of the child um uh, we he doesn't know everything so we are with him the time the whole time um that he is um nope that's not him nope anyway never mind <laughs> um <laughs> Nobuo, Nobuo, uh, the restaurant, the restaurant couple's child. Um, it's such a fascinating story because it's also a case of it's a quiet film, mm-hmm. and there are things not said, but or sometimes there are even scenes that are played out with no dialogue, even. Like when he goes at the back of the boat and he sees uh, the mother of the two kids doing sex work in the middle of it. And it's just so sensitively observed. Um, there's also this depiction of poverty, but with respect to the yeah. people that it depicts. It's not relishing in the poverty of it all. Um, and... I think it's a strongly acted film and it has a touching ending as well. And the black and white cinematography betrayed me because it, it almost feels it, it, it gives me so much, uh, uh, empathy. And you know, like I, this is probably just me. Like sometimes it's almost feel like when I see a black and white film, it's almost like a, a wall sometimes that you, sometimes it can get intimidating visually But then mm-hmm. for here, I don't mind the choice. It actually makes it even more timeless, this story mm-hmm. of friendship. Yeah. Exactly. And I really like what you said about um, it not feeling like poverty porn or not like relishing in like how poor are these people. I should sing poverty um, porn right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, I, I think it does a really good job of showing like, There's, there's happiness and sadness in this kid's life. And it's not necessarily what we would feel would make us happy or sad. Like, I like how there's these, like, cute memories he has, like, with his dad around, like, the dinner table. Then there's, like, sadness when, like, the mom is, like, sick and in the hospital. But also, like, there's this great friendship that the kids are having. And, like, he's deriving. It, it's a movie where it really tries to almost I think answer like where does this kid find joy and he's finding the impetus is he's finding joy in this relationship with these other kids on this this boat and you're just sort of piecing together what else is happening on this boat and it's because your your window in your point of view this kid doesn't really care what's going on in the back with the mom or you know there's certain other things like with the man who is like drowning in the river like the kid noticed it but it is preoccupied with other things because it's a kid like i think it does a really good job of understanding where the perspective is yeah it is and the tone of the film understands that journey that it's not yeah it's not one thing and it can shift here and there and it has sensitivity for every character that it has like mm-hmm. you know the parents the children Even the the sex worker that we only see like twice, mm-hmm. um, there is this empathy that you can feel. Um, it's not as if an outsider was making this film. It feels yeah. like 
it feels honest it feels grounded and um i, I it, it just it just registers right you know it when i watch it, it it doesn't feel wrong i mean there are moments when like for example the um when there when you when we encounter this when when nobu finally encounters the the sex worker like it doesn't it there is so much care there's so much care in the way the story is being told um that's why when i emerge from it i have nothing but empathy for it. i i don't i don't feel pity for them i feel understanding i feel that i've shared for one hour 45 minutes this um shared space like it it doesn't this doesn't f- it doesn't feel very uh, aesthetically ambitious but it immerses you into the character's sense of place and how they think their own stakes um especially the parents for example they have their own things to deal with with the biological mother of nobu you also have them are they their hesitation to deal with um the children of a, of a sex worker and nobu the kid just trying to absorb everything that's going on they know that something's up but they just don't understand fully it and we almost get to see the film at their pace mm-hmm. so I, know, I value these kinds of filmmaking when it's simple but it's honest and it knows the story it wants to tell and I don't I don't I know it's not the clearest um thing to praise like it's it's honest but I think you know it when you see it oh absolutely and I think too like you talked a little bit about like the the filmmaking and how maybe it's a little unambitious but what I also enjoyed is I felt like I got a really strong sense of place from how everything was shot. And especially like, I think the geography of um, where uh, and I'm going to butcher the name. You said it was a Nobuo, who's the kid that um, we're following um, where he is in relation to the kids sort of on the ramshackle boat in the river. I think like that was re- displayed really well. And I think you get a lot just from like the geography of where, um things are set within the film yep it is it's it's a strong one and uh, i'm glad i saw it because i did not know what to expect um i thought um the black and white version that was available is like a poor copy like i don't know if i'm gonna sometimes that's a struggle because sometimes you find films but they're not already in fine form already mm-hmm. and sometimes that becomes a barrier in appreciating it And with this one, it feels timeless. It feels like, uh, yeah, it's made then, but it still connects to now. And it's a, it's an empathy machine generator, <laughs> like uh, yeah, Roger Ebert would say. Yeah, it's a human story, and that yeah. just kind of always shines through. Yeah, it is. It's that's that's all you need. Um, a story that understands the human experience and. You're good to go. <laughs> yeah, so that's Muddy River. And the last film is Three Brothers from Italy. It premiered out of competition in Cannes. It won the Boston Society Film Critics for Foreign Language Film. 
and it's one of the National Board of Review Top 5 of 1982. It's about, um, duh, three brothers, uh, <laughs> that they go home when their mother dies, and they go home to their father. Mm-hmm. Um, three brothers, all right. What do you think about three brothers? Yeah, so this was, um, I was just like, oh, wow, this is like the the this is us of this category. Um, everyone <laughs> has their own. I love your reference. Because <laughs> I, I think like Three Brothers was an interesting experience. And I'd love to hear, hear your thoughts on it, too, because I, I think overall, like I was invested well enough in like following um, the different lives and um things that each of the brothers were having to deal with but i don't know as they're all converging on um this funeral if it never feels like their conflicts are in conversation with each other's and i don't know if i fully bought their family dynamics or i would have loved if um their family dynamics came or were given a bit more prominence compared to their own unique storylines, even though I liked um, their unique storylines. I especially liked, um, I believe it was uh, Flip Norette, who was the um, one who was in um, this sort of political skirmish. Um, and I, I, I don't know if it all all the pieces added up to the film I was expecting or, or kind of hoping for, but I did like the pieces of the film. Um, But yeah, I'd love to hear, hear your thoughts on it. It's a film that I think is, by the way, it's directed by Francesca Rossi. I just forgot that. Um, It, it doesn't pretend to be anything that it's not. It is focused on the three brothers, and it's definitely about the three brothers, wherever they go and whatever situation they have. Like I said, they have diverging issues in life. Um, one is uh, having, like I said, a, a political problem. Another one is uh, working in a boy's town, I guess. And the third one is having a failed marriage or some sorts. And we see them deal with it in their own ways. Um, which for me is fascinating how the filmmaking is not free for it's not free flowing, but the story kinda is. And that <laughs> one point we see the brother, what's his name? Um, Nicola. Um it's kinda cute. Uh Nic- Nicola dealing with this um, wife soon to be divorced to and after that they're having sex and then later you see uh, Raffaele kind of seeing how he would be assassinated Um, I think it gets that mindset of when some of grief and it's not always about the dead it's sometimes about dealing with your you you get to deal with your own crap in life when you're ex- when when mortality is right in front of you you kind of look back and like oh what's happening with me um i don't mind where it goes uh, i mean i'm not hot for it uh i'm not 
I don't have this very strong emotional investment, but I had ample emotional engagement for me to follow them. Uh, I'm not sure if the the brother from the Boys Town is uh, as you know the one that is imagining how to like be in service of the kids in the Boys Town. I don't know if that's as weighty as Raffaele and uh, Nicola. What's the name of that second brother? The name of the second brother is Rocco. I don't know if his storyline is as weightier. But I don't know. The film is both standard and creative enough. Yeah, it's definitely not not bad. And I think you know each of them feel feel distinct. There is something interesting, and I think this is something that people find true. Like even though you were raised in the same household as people grow up, they go about their own lives and like have their own set of experiences that lead them to different things. I just don't, I, I I wish there was either they were in conversation with each other a bit more or there was more conflict that was born out of the different life choices that they've, that they had. Because I think they, there are three interesting characters that are set up that the titular three brothers, but I never, and maybe this also like isn't the movie that it's trying to be, but um, they're going here to um the funeral of their mother but i never got a sense of what when she was alive what was their family unit like and if there wasn't much of a family unit kind of why was that and so i feel like i had i had more questions about their relationships than i did answers throughout but it it was like engaging enough that i i wanted to stick around and see if there were more more answers to questions i was having Another issue that I have, well, first of all, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean on that. Uh, it's hard to get invested when, it's hard to get invested on what they're invested in if you don't have much idea on what they are invested. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the second one is that I, it's not the best casting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy the three as brothers. <laughs> And yeah, they all must usually, have had different mothers at different points. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I'm going to go back to This Is Us. That is a case of like great casting because you, I did not expect that uh, Chrissy Mays and Justin, Justin, Justin Hartley. Hartley. I'm so bad. I, I don't remember. And Sterling oh, K. All Brown. Good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Justin Hartley. Um, like, they have such chemistry You know, and they're of different backgrounds and different physical descriptions. And, you know, um, like, sorry, film goers, we're going to, little TV. Um, <laughs> with, with um, I want to get the names. With Randall, yeah. Sterling K. Brown, he is, he's, he's the only black person in this white family, basically, adopted. And then Kevin, right? Kevin. Yep. Kevin is this ripped uh, TV star. Um, and then Kate is dealing with her own physical insecurities with her weight and uh, fertility. But when they're together, they're so different. But when they come together, you have this joy. And like, I believe they have, they've had a childhood. Yeah. They have coexisted. And there is this, I, I don't know. I don't think it's something you can manufacture with three brothers. I, it's like, 
three strangers and like I I cannot see how they existed together. I don't buy their brotherhood. Yeah. Because also too, like I'm even just thinking of like August Osage County of all, even if you haven't seen your siblings in so long, there's probably a reason for it. Like there's that... Is there some, like, skeletons in your closet from, like, when you were kids? Or, like, what's the fucking beef and why didn't you talk to each yeah. other? Like, the absence of a relationship is actually textually a relationship. And I didn't even feel the sort of absence, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also, you know, I think that, that chemistry with, with not just in the film, but with people. You know, when, when they separate, it's like when they meet, they kind of pick up where they left. And that's where the, usually the chemistry comes back. Like, you know, we've probably been separated for like 20 years. But, you know, there is this like um, way in for connection. With three brothers, I just found them so separate to one another. And like, and like you said a while ago, I now I see it more. Like, if you're going to give me three distinctive people with distinctive journeys, at least bring in something thematically coherent. And I'm not sure if... if it's cohering because, for example, maybe you could say about what what is the theme with Rock uh, with uh, Raffaele, his fears for uh, political uh, um, retribution um, and all that. And when you go with Rocco, what is at stake with Rocco? Truly, you know, when he's running the boys down. Yeah, um, there are some so delinquent kids coming out, but it's not as weighty as or as well explored. And then with Nicola. Um, he is uh, also involved in a labor dispute and with a failed marriage. Like, I'm not seeing and I'm not feeling a thread for those three. No, and you could have it where, like, Nicola is um, investing in the Labor Party and maybe um, Raphael is um, more conservative or more against the Labor Party and his political aspirations. And so you can have tension there but then Rocco's still left out and you don't know what his journey with Boys Town kind of brings to it at all so I don't know it, it, it is it's it's definitely not poorly made or whatnot it's but it, it's it's just kind of yeah, it the sum of its parts don't add up to one thing yeah and with uh with, with the Rocco storyline I think there's already some hint you know with the police tension with one of the I, I just think I think this is a case where the script could have been more developed so that themes tie together more. Because this is not the first time that we see three char- three characters have different journeys. I mean, but usually when you have three characters that are separate for the most time, there is a theme that unites them together. With this one, it doesn't really. So I don't know. I think we could just. I mean. They could have find ways to, I think we've been already hinting at like the, the political aspect and then the, the labor dispute, and then there's a hint of that with the police dealing with Rocco. I think that could have been a thread. Yeah. Aside from the grief, mm-hmm. that they experience because, I'm not sure if also they're experiencing grief. <laughs> I, I I would I would kind of agree. It, they all they even feel like strangers from their own parents in a way. Yeah. Which is, uh, kind of throws you off. But, you know, 
take it on a surface level, it's a it's a fine film that um, is kind of harmless. Yeah. But I also wish it did more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. Those are the three brothers. <laughs> um, now that we've talked about, now that we've talked about these five, um, I would probably ask, like, what do you think of this lineup in general? I think you already mentioned a little bit of it a while ago, and where do you think Mephisto stands? Like, do you think was it an easy win on this one, or like, what do you, how do you compare Mephisto to these other nominees? What do you think of this lineup in general? Um, so I think uh, kind of what you were talking about with the boat is full. I think a lot of these are very like matter of fact. And I think some of them in the case of like Three Brothers, Muddy River and um, the boat is full are a bit smaller. So I see why like um, in judging by precursors, it feels like it was probably Mephisto or Man of Iron, which was the Palm Door winner um, for, for the win. And they feel like the sort of grander films in 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 the lineup so I, I i can see why mephisto won i think it also checks a lot of boxes being about nazis and having a theater aspect um, and being about acting and art uh so i see why the oscars gravitated towards it um i also think compared to um these movies i um i would probably put it as my second favorite if I had to vote with my heart, I really enjoyed my time on that muddy river. I'll remember. <laughs> um, and, and that's probably where I would vote. But I think also it's the old saying that like you can replace best with most in the Oscars yeah. and it'll make it easier to predict. I think Mephisto is sort of the most movie in a way. <laughs> and um, yeah. and, and that, that's kind of why I feel like if you're looking at these five and ask me to pick what do I think Oscar would go for, I would probably say Mephisto. Yeah. Um, with Mephisto, I think, uh, like you said, you know, there is a swastika in the poster. Yep. <laughs> it's right there. Um, I think with this one, it's just a case of what really fits the mold, like you said, especially with this category and what, what the Academy used to really like to honor in this category. Um, it is a, a film that has an air of importance historically, has weight, uh, and I don't know, uh, but um, it fascinates me, especially when we, when when we go back because number one, um, the film with the most precursors was actually disqualified mm-hmm. or just not nominated, and this was the time when. A film could win without even screening in any film festivals at all, <laughs> and not winning anything. Like, where where did that what? <laughs> so th- this was the period of that. Um, you know, when we go to like, it's like a whiplash. You know, with um, with Fanny and with the official story, nineteen eighty five had original screenplay nomination at the Oscars. It mm-hmm. already has an upper hand, and then you go to nineteen eighty four with Dangerous Moves had nothing. Nothing, nothing. And then you go to 1983, you'd find Alexander, best director, best screenplay, best everything, won four Oscars. And then you go to Volvira and Pizar, nothing again. <laughs> and like, this is the this is the period, especially we go back, which is like, oh, a random film, because that's not going to happen now. No. 
now you have to have premiered somewhere. Now you have to have some semblance of US distribution. Now you, because, which I would go now segue to the nominees, uh, the submissions, because the submissions this year were only 25. We're not dealing with 93. <laughs> 2020, we're dealing with 93. Well, you had like three plus disqualifications then, but you know, even then with the disqualifications, we have so much. Um, yeah, so I'm going to save my ranking for later, but <laughs> um, let's just go quickly to the other submissions here. I'm not going to name all 25 because <laughs> I wasn't able to find a summary for all of them, but let's just go over with... Some of the things you've seen, uh, there was a surprise that you said you watched the Soviet Union submission. Uh, oh, sport, you are peace. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't trust the online summary, so I would let you tell the story and what you think about it. Well, there's not much of a story to tell, but it, it, it kind of <laughs> um, diverts from what the actual story is. So it's um, almost sort of... Uh, just committing to record the opening ceremonies of the 1980 Olympics. But sort of the context around, as we're in the middle of the Cold War, a lot of countries opted out of um, participating in these Olympics. The movie briefly mentions that and then has a bunch of talking heads about how, you know, why in the world would other countries not want to come together with us to participate in the games? And then the rest of the movie is just... Um, colorful uh, displays of pride for the Olympics. But I think within that, I found it interesting that there, there's a lot of like cool retro cartoons about the history of the Olympics and how it was sort of this um, moment of peace where no matter what was happening, people would gather together and play these sports and engage in healthy competition. And then they would go back to fighting and killing each other. And I wish, and this is probably also like, you can't have this sort of hindsight while you're still within modern history. Like they made this one year after the Olympics. They they seemed uninterested in talking about the um, political climate that led to people uh, not wanting to participate in the 1980 Olympics and just kind of moved on to showing the cool things that were being done during the opening ceremonies, which is much less interesting. So it, it's, it's an interesting time capsule of the actual program of the Olympics in 1980, but uh, it feels like it actively tries to skirt around what made those Olympics historically significant. Yeah. Um, to our listeners, yes, it's a documentary. Yes. <laughs> um, this was interesting because... You know, the United States boycotted that Olympics. And 1980, Soviet Union won this category, which we'll talk about next week in the season finale. Oh my gosh, season finale, season four. And then 1982, they were nominated again. So they were. this was the film that came in between. And it's, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to fare. You know, I don't know how this fared You know, in the voting. But yeah, uh, do you think... Would it have been a good nominee or? Um, compared to the, I, I, I maybe think it's more interesting than Three Brothers, but like, there, there, there's not, 
I don't know really what I learned. I, I, it's an interesting time capsule and less so an interesting film, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I need it to be a nominee just because I don't, I don't know kind of what makes it exemplary mm-hmm. and because it just feels more so like a timestamp. Yeah. Yeah, you have those films when uh, I just want to see that so I would know what's happening at the time. It's not necessarily good or great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's available on... On the Criterion channel. So it was very, very readily available for me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And um, I myself have seen two submissions. Uh, Diva from France. It's about it's directed by Jean-Jacques Binet. Uh, it premiered in Moscow and Chicago Film Festival, where it won Silver Hugo. It was nominated in BAFTA in 1982 and won Kansas Film Critics for Foreign Language Film. And National Society of Film Critics for Cinematography. It's about a post. What is it about? <laughs> That's it's always about... a good sign. <laughs> it's about a postman who, number one, records the uh, records the singing of an opera singer's performance without her permission. Ooh. Number two, steals her, her dress. And number three, has a cassette tape put on her his satchel, which is a confession of, it's like, if I was killed, this is a random woman. And then this postman is friends with an artist. I give up. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to summarize this film. Um, I mean, when you look at when you look at the I the IMDb, and you look at the Wikipedia page of it, it's 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 so complicated. Oh God! To summarize, to summarize, because oh, it's it's considered a postmodern film. What I I I am, ugh. All right. So all right, I will just read the IMDb summary. Two tapes, two Parisian mob killers. One corrupt poli- policeman, one corrupt policeman, an opera fan, a teenage thief, and the coolest philosopher ever filmed all twist their way through an intricate and stylish French language thriller. So it, it doesn't make sense to summarize it plot-wise. So just list the names of the characters. Um, it is a deliciously stylish film that... Number one is so assured of its style and story that it's just like a ride. Like it sounded complicated when I told it, but when you watch it, it's just like, yeah, I'm in for the ride. And second one, I'm surprised with the amount of representation that he had because the opera singer is black and the one of the art and the artist here is Vietnamese. And there are integral, and they're both women, and there are integral roles in this film. So I'm like, that's what I felt also with Mephisto with the with the black inter- instructor. And like, wow, okay, I'm seeing something different, especially with my expectations tempered by this time, because at this time it's easier to see just films purely about white people be nominated, and like no one bats an eye. Like that's very good. That's the industry for you, but. Yeah, see four this out of five and five European nominees this year too. Like lots of white people. <laughs> yeah, 
lots of white people. So when I see this one, like, oh, wow. And, you know, it's just like, it's it's, it's a demonstration of like how representation, it's, it's almost like a 2020 lens but how representation can be just so easy to do it's it's not you can you can do it not in a tokenism kind of way it just comes naturally and it's mm-hmm. it's it's it's, uh, it's so exciting and there's this one car chase scene that is just so well done and it's it's nowhere near the action crap car chases it's so enigmatic the way that was shot and it's a mixture of the car chase and then foot foot race <laughs> on foot running and then oh i can't recommend it enough i i think i love this film I, I think i do um yay for me yeah so i'm so happy um i'm surprised they did not nominate this because it could have been a sure ball nominee. You know, that was a period when they would nominate everything from France. Uh, and the second one that I've seen is actually disqualified. And it actually has an impressive precursor hall. It's Pijot from Brazil. It's directed by Oscar nominated Hector Babenco. It was nominated for Golden Globe. It won the New York Film Critics or Foreign Language Film as well as the Los Angeles Film Critics. And it is about a young boy named Pijot who is um, imprisoned in a, like a juvenile prison. <laughs> and he sees the horrible circumstances there. Um, and then when he escapes, he joins other uh, prisoners who escaped. Um including and, and and they started to deal drugs so that they would have something to you know they would earn money and they start to have a relationship with um a prostitute who just um had an abortion in her own home and um it's i just want to say i i know it's it's a brazilian classic um uh, i really respect it more than i love it but Damn, it's so well made. And um, Roger Ebert raves about it. Um, Pauline Kael raves about it. It was just raves then. And oh, Spike Lee, Mira and I, Harmony, Corrine, Martin Scorsese, and the Safety Brothers classified this as one of their favorite films. Wow. Um, it won Silver Leopard, Austin Locarno, blah, blah, blah. National, so- National Society of Film Critics Best Actress for Maria Pera. I I, I I I know there's a there's a person out there who would love this more than I did but I just I this is tremendous filmmaking it's um it could I don't know if the academy would go for this given it's so gritty and so raw but damn <laughs> so why did it get disqualified that's the question I've been saying for a, for a while ago um it, it, apparently, according to an article that I read, I don't know if it's LA Times or New York Times, apparently it was disqualified because it had test screenings before the eligibility period. Oh, what a technicality that is. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's pretty... Yeah, it was in test marketed in Brazil. It's not te- test marketed. 
a few days before the allowable date. But it's like, it's, they did not, I mean, right now, now we, we disqualify if it premiered on a theatrical, it was released publicly. You know what I mean. But it's just that, yeah. it's, 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 it's so frustrating that that's the reason why they disqualified this film for something that is common practice in it's it's not that we're excusing that but it's just saying that that's how films are made they're being tested in the market yeah and it, it just feels like a technicality around release dates when there are so many other i think funkier things that distributors try and pull with release dates to get things to qualify it, it, it just it feels punitive in a way that doesn't really serve anything yeah it is and uh i don't know uh i'm really impressed by that film i i don't it, it's it's been recently restored so the, the 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 version that i was able to watch was glorious it's like again it's like one of those things when you watch like it just interests you to see it's also in the criterion collection oh wow yeah, it, it probably is because we don't have Criterion here in the Philippines, but it is available. I think I searched it. So, um, what do I want to say? Yeah, because I think when you watch when we watch old films, like a while ago, I was already saying that there it's probably harder to appreciate when there is like you know physical deterioration with a film that you watch. But sometimes it also there is a barrier that they're old people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't connect to them. the same way. That's why. Um, this documentary by Peter Jackson that they will never grow old. Mm-hmm. It was really important for them to colorize the and restore the 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 footage of soldiers and there were also some silent shorts like I think the people playing in the snow mm-hmm. they restored it and put color and corrected the time frame wow. because once we restore these things and you see them in their best possible version you tend to not look at them as like old films, old people. Like you feel their proximity to you. And that's what I feel when I watch classics that are restored patiently by restorers. Yeah. <laughs> Restoration people. So, um, and world cinema suffers from this most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, proper p- film preservation and <laughs> restoration. So, yeah, I'm so happy to go to Sapijo because... I probably did not love it because of the subject matter or the way because it was just really gritty and raw. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's just wow. It's it's wow. Anyway. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um so I'm just gonna list a few other submissions that make sense. <laughs> that probably brought bring up. Uh, Der Bokera from Austria, it won Best Actor in Moscow. It's about a politically naive butcher who survives Nazi occupation in Austria in World War II. Les Plouf from Canada. It premiered in Chicago and big winner, The Genies. Interestingly, not Best Picture. It's about the Quebecois family who tried to survive the Depression and the World War II. Yes. And then Sign of the Beast from Finland. It's about the lives of Finnish soldiers during the World War II. Yes, again, World War II. Um, really raking it. And then Lily Marlene from West Germany. The only film by Rainer Werner Fassbinder that was submitted by West Germany. Wow. It's about um, 
a love between a German singer and a Swiss Jewish composer during the Third Reich. So yes, World War II again. Um, the Man with the Carnation from Greece, it, it won a special diploma from Moscow. It's about a Greek communist that went home to Greece only to be arrested, tried, and executed. Um, Outlaw, the Saga of Gisli from Iceland, it's about the blood feud between Viking families in the 10th century. Uh, Children's Island from Sweden, it premiered in Berlin and also in Chicago. It's about a young man who's supposed to go to summer camp named Children's Island who decided to stay in Stockholm. And uh, Do You Remember Baby Doll from Yugoslavia? It won Silver Lion in Venice. It's about a schoolboy who provides a hiding place for a prostitute. And, uh, yeah. So, I took I took a look at like some of the films that premiered in Cannes and Venice that were not submitted, but they make sense to be submitted if they were submitted, but they were not submitted. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of them are Tragedy of a Ridiculous Man from Italy. It premiered in Cannes and won Best Actor. It's directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. It's about an Italian businessman who decides whether to pay a ransom for his abducted son or not. Wow. Um, so, sounds more interesting than the three brothers. <laughs> yes, definitely. And uh, this one, next one, is in English, so it would not have qualified. But it's from France. It's Possession. It won Best Actress in Cannes. It's written by Andrzej Jolowski. It stars Isabella Gianni. It's about a woman who starts exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking her husband for a divorce. Um, this one, Beaupère, or Stepfather from Cannes. It, from France. <laughs> Premiered in Cannes. It's about Bertrand Blier. It's about a 30-year-old pianist who has an affair with his 14-year-old stepdaughter. After her mother dies in a car accident. Yikes. At the, at, yeah, yikes. At the time, it was controversial but positive. But if you take a look at the French poster of the film, I don't know how I should have probably searched it, but it's the girl topless. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take a look of how old the actress was at the time. But that poster was very controversial, according to what I read. What's the name of the actress? I think it's Annie Best. 1965, 84, 85. Oh, she was 15 years old. The poster that was showing her topless was distributed. It was exhibited on billboards without her permission and the oh, family's no. permission. But they lost a case. Ooh. That's her first film and she only made two other films and that's it. Yeah, it does not sound like a positive working environment. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I would I would probably not judge the film, but the way they distributed it is pretty nasty. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the Prisa de Prisa from Spain. It won a Golden Bear in Berlin, directed by Carlos Saura. It's about um, Angela trying to hang out with a gang of young robbers. And it is it is considered a classic in Spanish cinema now. And Carlos Saura, they've, they've submitted it multiple times. Uh, Marianne and Julianne from West Germany. It won Golden Lion in Venice, directed by Margarete von Trotta. It's about two sisters a journalist and a terrorist when a terrorist was jailed uh that the journalist sister tries to help and then 
Sweet Dreams from Italy. It won in Venice and won a special jury prize. Directed by Nani Moretti. It's about a filmmaker who experiences hallucinations involving his latest project. A screenplay entitled Freud's Mother. And They Don't Wear Black Tie from Brazil. Tied with Sweet Dreams for a special jury prize. It's sort of a Leon Hirschman. It's about a union leader's son uh, who doesn't want to engage in a strike. But because his wife is pregnant, he disregards his family's tradition for political activism. That's what I could find. And um, again... I'm using this sidebar to like highlight some Filipino films that were because we didn't submit and we had four great films and what the f. <laughs> so the first one eligible is Bona from Can. Uh, it it premiered in Can. It's directed by Lino Broca. It's about um a hardcore fan of an action star who starts living with his idol and becoming his servant. Ooh, <laughs> sounds interesting. Yeah, and uh, the ending is iconic. I wouldn't have. I should tell. Nope. 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 I won't. But it stars Nora Honor. And then Brutal. It's about a woman that was forced to marry a man that raped her. And as it turns out, the man is a drug addict. And they are, he and his friends are gang raping his wife. Ooh. But this is framed in Me Distress, we've been talking about it a while ago, after she murdered them. <laughs> and this is based on a true story. Wow. Yeah. She... It's, re- it's recently restored. I think it's available on demand, so that's great. And then Salome, this one is not restored. Uh, this is about a woman who was who said she was raped by a city boy that comes to their province. But there are multiple accounts of that. And as it turns out, it's probably more complicated than just a straight-up rape. And then the last one is Manila by Night. It's about... Uh, this is a, a band of characters in several nights in Manila. Some of them are like drug dealers. Some of them are prostitutes. Some of them are blind masseuse. Some of them as a gay parlor owner. A drug addict, a former prostitute, lots of characters. I couldn't even count them. Um, this one was not given the permit to be sent out in film festivals because, according to the former first lady, Imelda Marcos, she's because at the time it was her project to um to beautify Manila, and then there is this film that shows the underbelly of Manila. So she. The government demanded that change the title to City After Dark, not Manila by Night. Mm. Mute all of any mentions of Manila in the oh. film and any streets in Manila and cut some scenes. Wow. Because this was still at the time of the martial law. Um, there you go. Anyway, Brutal was directed by Marilu Diazabaya, Salome by Loris Kildian, and Manila by Night by Ishmael Bernal. Four great directors doing their great works. I mean, Manila Bennett would not have been submitted. It wasn't given a given a permit for Berlin, I guess. It wasn't given a permit to skid. But yeah, that one was also recently restored. Um, yeah, I'm just happy to share it. If anyone could watch him, I think 
some of them are available freely online for some reason. I don't know why, but people do get what they gotta do and watch these films. And uh, I'm just proud to watch them because I, I've seen these four um, in ages when I should not have watched them. <laughs> but I'm really proud. Which which of these four would you choose to submit if you were choosing their submission for 1981? <laughs> this is hard for me. <laughs> I you know what I'm gonna go with Manila by Night is too risky. <laughs> Salome is it's it's a rural story, so I don't know if they would. You know, they're biased. You know. And then Brutal is so sharply feminist. Anti-rape, which at the time would be read as a male-hating film. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing that they read Thelma and Louise as a male-hating film. Yeah. So I think Bona is the best strategy because first of all... Um, the director, Lina Broca, has, is the first Filipino director to screen in Cannes. So he already has that pedigree. And then this also premiered in Cannes. It stars probably the greatest actress in Philippine cinema. And it's about... Um, it's a little bit about making films. Because she is... She is following him in every shoot. And she becomes the... Servant. Um... So I don't know. I think I think Bona would be wise, and I think I I I don't think it's restored yet. The only version available has French subtitles. Oh wow! So I don't know if it was co-produced by France or it was just a can print, but I think I'm gonna go with Bona because it's the most accessible with these ones. There we go. That's amazing. Yeah, but yeah, this is the this is the times when I feel like, what is the best film versus what is the best film to submit. Exactly. Yeah. I also had the same question with 1982 because the guest was Filipino and we were like, we both love those films, but the film that we love more doesn't make a lot of sense as our <laughs> submission, so we got to go with the epic ones. Like, see, anyway, it's, it is what it is. That's what, that's how this category rolls, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, Chris, um, after talking about Mephisto, mm-hmm. Um, do you think it was a worthy winner of this category? Um, I do. I, I, I think of the films, I might have preferred Muddy River uh, a bit more, but I think kind of what you're just talking about, how um, there is sort of like a game and a type of, of Oscars. And I think, I think Mephisto wears the title of Best Foreign Language Feature well, and is at least in the in the upper tier of this category for me. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a thumbs up as a worthy winner. Uh for me. Sure. <laughs> like, uh, sure. Uh I, I see why they went there. I mean I think we have those Alright, I think a lot of I think, you know, when, when discussing, like, awards, people get to, like, it deserves it or it doesn't. Like, no, sometimes it's in between, like, I don't I don't mind it winning. <laughs> and uh, it's a well-made film, which has some powerful, which has a powerful story and powerful moments and powerful moments of filmmaking. And 
it still takes some i think it's it has aged well i think um with some elements of it like the casting of the black dancer and the filmmaking is still remarkable and the way it talks about like art in a bubble is that possible to talk about art without politics even um Certainly, that has been brought up in Oscar conversations. Yeah. Uh, especially in Trump era, like, just talk about films, don't talk about the politics, which is ridiculous. Um, but I don't mind it. It's, I think it, it I, I, I see why they went there. And um, it's not unworthy. So, sure. Like, they do their thing. So, I know you already mentioned your number one. Uh, I'm going to try to forget. <laughs> what the number one was and okay. let's give our rankings uh, <laughs> what's your number five my number five um i i will say i um like this more after hearing your take on it but while watching it i did kind of feel like paint drying so i'm gonna go with man of iron as my number five you know what? I'm sorry. I need to feel like we'll never match this year. <laughs> <laughs> my number five is Three Brothers. And what's your number four? My number four is Three Brothers. So we're, we're close there. Yeah. My number four is Mephisto. Wonderful. My number, your number three? My number three would be The Boat is Full. My number three? <laughs> This is this top three would be so jumbled. <laughs> um, number three for me would be Muddy River. Wonderful. What's your number two and one? Alright, so my number two is Mephisto. My number one is Muddy River. My number two is Man of Iron, and my number one is The Boat Is Full. I I love we it. Two completely different lists. Yeah, we never match. <laughs> great. Like I, I love it when we were talking about like um the boat is full and man of iron and I'm listening to your thoughts like we are disconnected this one <laughs> no but I, but I lovely but I, I think especially on the boat is full um I I might have even like had that maybe at well no I, I think I always thought it was better than three brothers but um I I definitely liked it more upon hearing hearing you talk about it and I think that's why it's also I I love film podcasts because people often give me other perspectives that I weren't didn't necessarily think while while watching the films so um, especially with foreign cinema I think that's really um, necessary and powerful yeah and with Muddy River I mean I I, I think it's I'm kind of in the same boat with Mephisto that I really respect it and it has some really good moments but I'm not as hot on it but when you started talking about it like oh yeah I think I'm starting to love it more mm -hmm. and um, that's why I would confess <laughs> that uh, this podcast was initially I was intending it to be like just an, a series of articles mm -hmm. but I know I would struggle with talking about these films and I don't think um which is weird because you know the our common denominator is we're writers at the film experience and I'm like talking about not being a good writer <laughs> sorry Nathaniel but I don't think I'm that good in writing my opinions in film I need like you know the back and forth mm -hmm. so and especially talking about these films that can be tough to talk about sometimes because you're talking about like cultural specificity and time specificity 
And uh, I'm just happy to do this. And um, it's an alibi for me to talk to more wonderful people. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I was really glad to see you again. And um, again, I'm manifesting. Um, Nathaniel, please. Um, Oscar Roundtable. Anyway, I'm so thankful for the time that you shared with us today. And uh, I'm just so happy to see you again. Wonderful. I'm so happy to see you as well, Juan Carlos. And thank you so much for having me on. It's It's been a pleasure. And I got to see... Um, six films that I had never seen before. So it was a joy. Oh, that's so great. And can you tell our listeners again when they can find you on the internet? Yes, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at CWJ92MovieMan. And you can also check out my podcast, The People vs. Oscar, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, listeners, it's time to catch up. I'm going to catch up as well. <laughs> I yeah, thought it yeah. was a premiere. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll have plenty of episodes to keep you keep you occupied for a while. <laughs> I love upsets. I love getting upset over films. But yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. This podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere. Uh-huh. Again, the last the, the four bonus episodes of the season are now already up on Patreon. All of them. Um, I really appreciate all of that. Uh, all our guests there just have to give a shout out to all of our guests from four different countries talking about four different films from different countries as well. I'm so happy for that bonus season series, <laughs> 2019 retrospective. So again, I'm wishing you all well. Uh, this is a goodbye for now. Yes. Um, see you in the season finale. That's going to be exciting. And, uh, together... Yeah, let's break the one-inch barrier.